welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. We are so excited here at Transformation Change Radio. Dr. Becky Martinez, I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. I don't know if this is number seven or eight, but each one we've gone deeper, broader after three years of working at dismantling racism and whiteness to really be here focusing now on classism, what it is, dismantling it. We could not be more excited. Evangeline Weiss here from Beyond Conflict. We are so excited you're here. We both have known you for years in different ways, and yet we were both saying that we haven't seen you for a while, so can't can't wait to see who you are now. And, and as I looked at your bio, because I knew you from the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, which we used to call it that. And now I think it's just called Task Force often. Um, you had with Reverend Dr. Jamie Washington and his group had us come in and do some anti-racism work. And that's one way I knew you through the Social Justice Training Institute. I believe you're an alum and had a whole bunch of people from the task force come. What I didn't know is how much, and I love this, social change designer. I just love that frame, community building, organizational development, your decades of that work. I didn't know you were at Duke University or I forgot doing equity inclusion work out of the center there for Office of Institutional Equity. Then leadership program director at the task force for years, really helping that organization partner with others to be truly equitable in the full breadth of differences, but particularly racial justice. So I have to say, I couldn't be more excited. The line you have in your bio, I love sustaining leaders on a path towards purpose and impact. I have a feeling that's something the three of us and many of the listeners share. And so to have you here, thank you so much to talk about dynamics of class and classism, which Becky and I believe have far too little attention over the centuries, much less today. Yeah, I um. So I'm excited to have you here as we were uh, brainstorming uh, folks. You came to mind as I think about your work um, around social justice at at the high level, um, but also around race and racism, especially as uh, we worked together for years and like we got to play and we got to learn and we were challenged um, in, in many ways that I'm glad that we've passed through those moments um, and growing, creating change from like 300 people to over a thousand people in some years. Um, and then just learning more about your story, um, both through a race lens, but also through a gender lens and a sexuality lens and a class lens. So I'm excited. Um, as you said, before we got on, oh, like, I'm not, like I saw you feeling your, your chest. Right. And the anxiousness that can come and the joy that can come and excitement from from this thing that we call class and are part of it every day. And it's part of us. And yet we don't name it. Um, Mm. 
Yeah. And, and so I can, I, I, I know you enough to know how your body's um, like, whoo, um, even that. <laughs> yes. So I want to start out by, uh, we want to, again, thank you. And as we start out, almost every interview or every conversation is tell us a little bit about your class story. Mm, thank you. It is so great to be here. It's wonderful mm. to see you both. And I love this question. It's become really a center, thinking about class has become a more centered question in the last few years for me as I do racial justice work with white people. And um, my class story is probably not that unusual. It, I, I grew up in Westchester County, north of New York City, um, upper middle class family, Jewish, progressive family that um, really saw their activism as writing checks to the NAACP and the ACLU. So very like philanthropy minded in terms of a class analysis, but very distanced. And we used to drive into the city to my aunt's apartment in the West Village and have that experience of like driving through the Bronx and my mom being like, okay, girls, put the, put, make sure your doors are locked. And that, that experience of like not really understanding that like, okay, now, we're moving through black and brown space and somehow I can pick up on my mom's anxiety. So like some early messages about um, us being different, but also um, or the spaces that we moved through were different around safety, around who we should be concerned about, but also really um, recognizing that my parents cared about people who were of a different class, poor people, working class people, um, but that care was expressed really at a distance. And um, I'm 55, so Richard Nixon got elected when I was a little kid, and my parents um, decided that they wanted to leave the country. They, um, they had a lot of wealth. They had each inherited a lot of wealth, and they ran, their, they ran a travel agency in Westchester. And when Nixon got elected, my parents decided to move to the south of France. So for 10 years, I lived in a Roman like walled village in the south of France where there were no cars and it was cobblestones and century old, centuries old buildings. Um, we moved there with my grandmother and I grew up speaking French and my sister and I would run around in Valbonne and we were like, les Américaines, you know, the little American girls. And really um, my understanding of class there kind of as a child, I have language now to describe it. Uh, as a child, I don't think I had any kind of analysis. I just knew that we moved in spaces that were very fancy, where I had to wear fancy clothes and I had to learn, like there were lots of forks and lots of knives and there was a lot going on on the table. And then I also moved through spaces that were, you know, running through bamboo forests and holy pants and, you know, being kind of a wild child and didn't have much of an analysis of like the private school that I went to or the, the things about that experience that were different. Meanwhile, in grown-up land, my father lost his job and my parents struggled to stay in France. And so when I was 13 years old, we moved back to the United States. And um, that's when I went from, I think, being an upper middle class person to just a middle class person. Both of my parents worked. My mother did not work in France. She was taking care of her mother, my grandmother who lived with us. And when we moved back to the United States, um, we moved to Westchester County. And um, I definitely, I went to public high school there. And I don't remember um, 
much about that in terms of having an analysis other than I, my parents talking a lot about credit cards and money and budgeting. And I remember like lots of tension around like trips to the mall and like, what could we afford? How many pairs of pants could we afford? So things had changed, but I think looking back, I have a greater understanding of that. At the time, it was very mysterious. Um, and then obviously fast forward, getting educated, going off to college. My parents took out a loan and I took out a loan to go to undergraduate. And I went to a super fancy liberal arts college that I loved and that loved me and um, really uh, got to meet people who were way wealthier than me, as well as people who had grown up much with much less than me. And so I think it was in college that I started to really understand both like the experience of class, but also begin to have like, what is Marxism? What is socialism? How do capitalism and democracy work together? How do they not work together? And so intellectually and academically started to learn more. And then again, keeping fast forwarding, getting my first jobs as a professional person in New York City, working on HIV and AIDS um, at both the New York City Department of Health and then gay men's health crisis a lot of that early professional work that I did in human services was just um, a really deep dive into class dynamics. I mean, race was in it, sexuality was in it, but you know, I was doing a, a training through the Department of Health for people who wanted to get third party reimbursed for, for pre and post HIV test counseling. And so we were training 911 operators and social workers wow. and nurses and doctors and psychiatrists and the people who worked on the AIDS hotline. And it became really clear to me that um, this, the, the horror of the AIDS epidemic so completely manifesting through um, a society that cares more about profit than cares about people. And so the homophobia, the racism, the classism that just felt like people were disposable. And so I can, when I, we sit in this moment now in the pandemic with COVID, I've been reliving a lot of my experiences with HIV in the nineties in New York. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've started now, I'm just gonna end. I, I don't know how, how much I wanna go keep going, but like the place I've landed now in doing white people work, a lot of white people work in my racial justice um, work is, is really helping white people to understand how much our understanding of whiteness and race is, um, is about our class experience. Like I know that my white person experience is really different than so many other white people's experience. I mean, I had a foreign country, I had parents who valued being multilingual. I went to a private liberal arts college. Like I was not crippled with debt when I got out. Like there's just so much about being white that is particular to my story and other upper middle class and middle class people. And I know there are working class and poor white people who came into their whiteness through a really different stories and really different experiences. And I want white people to understand that we have to claim our we have to claim our class story in order to be better allies and in order to be more effective in, in racial justice space. So I've been doing a lot more of that work in the last five years and I'm sure we'll get into it. We'll talk more about it, but that's, that's a little bit of what I can remember of my class story right now. Mm. Oh my gosh, we could do episodes and episodes. I wanna be like, oh, so talk to me about this and talk to me about that. and. I, I guess we will save some of that for another time and then some of that for now. I'm curious to know um, how 
and you talked a little bit about your, um, like the messages you received, some of those, um, how do other messages um, and those still show up today in you and how you navigate, how you do work, how you parent, how you um, partner, how you be? Um, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, I am so much more aware today of the, the particularity of how money impacts all of us, all of our decisions. Like as I was thinking about getting on the, this, having this conversation with the two of you, I, one of the things that comes up for me is ease. Mm. Like I, I have so much ease. I have oodles and oodles of ease in terms of food, in terms of leaving my house, not leaving my house, how I navigate the world, where I go, um, how I gift, where, when I gift, how, it, how I define my work, how I think about my worth. So how I define my work and how I think about my worth. All of those things are so impacted by my money story, my money story today. Um, so I'm trying to think about like being concrete. I had a birthday party recently. Um, and I had been, I haven't seen my friends in two years. Like we've been very, my wife is immune compromised and I've been hyper vigilant about COVID and really have been a shut-in. Like Zoom has been my life. And um, I decided, you know, worked with her around precautions and how we could do it. And we invited about 15 of my friends to come hang out in the backyard. This is a couple of weeks ago. And I have friends who are span all kinds of diversity, race, gender, sexuality, class. And I wanted to have a meaningful conversation at my birthday party. I didn't want to just get together and drink and eat. And I, I don't know if it's the facilitator in me or if I was just hungry for like getting this beautiful group of people together and wanting to do something more meaningful. Maybe it's because we're living in like dumpster fire times. And so I, I came up with this idea and I wanna walk it through with you because I think it's, it's totally, a, it's such a great story for like my money, like my inner dialogue around money. I decided that I'm turning 55 and I, I, I just woke up one day and I, I literally was like, I wanna give everybody at the party $55. And I want us to have a conversation about what we care about and where we think our money can make a difference. And so like I facilitated this thing, I called it game 55. And I went through this whole manifestation in my head of like, I didn't want people to who didn't have $55 to feel pressure. So I was like, the only way to do this is to just fund it. So I'm going to put the money on the table. And then anybody that wants to match me or meet me is welcome to put their own $55 on the table. But I wanted us to start from like, I wanted to remove the anxiety for people who might not want to play. And we broke up into small groups and we did three rounds and people <laughs> talked about people talked about what was important to them and where they felt like money could make a difference in their communities. And then we came back together and we shared. Then we went back into small groups and tried to like come up with some consensus. And at the end of the like 45 minutes or whatever it was, um, we decided that we were going to split the money between uh, an, uh, a black organizer who lives here in North Carolina who's struggling and is being has to move from one place has an unstable living situation and needs to move and that the other half of the money was going to go to a mutual aid group here in Greensboro and I 
I did not do an evaluation. I didn't send an evaluation out to my friends, but like, it was such a, I was so hung up in my head about like what it was going to feel like to ask for this from my friends. And these are people who love me. They know me, they know my heart. And I still felt like this was a big deal to ask people to talk about money and where they would put it. And I, and I did provoke the group to say like, if it was your $55, you know, like, are you, how much is this different? Because it's someone else's money that we're talking about. And I don't know, I'm not sure this is kind of getting at your question, but it's like, I'm very aware, you know, 15 times 55, like that's what I wanted to do to have this experience with my friends. And I don't know, I mean, about half the group matched us. And um, I know that the organizer, the black woman organizer who received her half of the money, you know, was incredibly grateful for that. But I, you know, she was like, what do I say? What do I do? And I was like, it's totally okay. You don't need to say or do anything. This is like to make your life, to give you more ease in your life. Mm -hmm. Like I want to transfer ease from my community to your community. And I think I'll just pause there as like an example. I know my wife and my son were like, what are we doing? Why are, why aren't we just going to like light a cake with some <laughs> candles? Like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> First of all, that sounds very you and happy belated birthday. <laughs> Cause I'd be like, where's the cake? Um, well, and, and that story has so much more than just money involved, right? More than financial capital, um, which is where we often talk about um, class, um, but it is the, like the, the social capital and the cultural capital. So like the layers of capital and the, like the thinking and the feeling about it. Um, and what, what now I'm going to take with me and use, cause I haven't, I don't think we've heard the word and I haven't in the work that I do even around class and classism is ease. Like that has captured me. Um, cause we often talk about it as privilege and access, but ease just makes it feel even more, oh, I don't, I don't even have a word for it. Yeah. Um, navigating these different arenas of our lives and our bodies with ease. Um, mm. that almost has me, that almost has me, like, I, I don't have any words for it. Um, the way mm. that it lands. Mm. Less stress, less illness, less physical impact, just to have peace and ease. I hadn't quite, I know I've been wanting that in my life. I hadn't quite connected the dots. So thank you, Evangeline, of how much of that is because of my class privilege, race privilege, and I could keep going. Our listeners might need a breath. Yes. Your story is fabulous on so many levels, the life as well as this birthday one and the ease with which you talk about class, even though I don't know what's going on inside, seems different from people that I'm with, hang out with. Um, and so what got my attention was people are expendable and the connection from HIV AIDS, I don't know if we call that a pandemic, to now, but this expendable. So if I'm thinking inside organizations where I have a lot of energy and wanting leaders and managers to really see classism, just wondering how do you see classism playing out 
in organizations. You work with nonprofits, you work with international, I mean, you work with corporate, you work wherever mm-hmm. you work, but how do you see it playing out? Eventually by the end, after a break in a bit, we'd love to hear some strategies that you've seen or you're doing. So beyond just the what is classism in organizations as mm-hmm. subtle and insidious as well as the blatant. Um, and then always are looking for what's possible or what do you see? But let's start with what have you seen? Well, there's definitely a way in which white supremacy culture and classism are so intricately woven together. Um, You know, oftentimes, I know you probably do this as well, but when we unpack professionalism, it's so so laden with um, expectations that are based in middle class and upper middle class values, things that people learn in graduate school, um, the, the presumptions. And I think there's that just kind of flows through nonprofits as like what it means to be a good organization, what it means to be a right organization, a deserving organization. So from the HR perspective, like all of, so many of our standards around communication, around um, professionalism feel to me embedded in classism. And I, I think it's really challenging to kind of put the mirror up to an organization and say like, well, what would it be like if, if it was totally okay for people to use emojis in their emails? Or what would it be like if, um, if you get the gist of the sentence and the grammar isn't correct or there's a spelling error, like you understand what the person was trying to say. So like, is that really problematic? I mean, if you don't understand the, what the message is, then yes, we need to go back and maybe outward facing versus inward facing, but like really diving into some of the ways that judgment just exists and we rationalize that judgment um, by using terms like professionalism. Um, The other place that I see classism just just all over the the place is in fundraising Mm -hmm. and um, organizations that, and this is true for universities, nonprofits, like the, the way in which fundraising and philanthropy really focuses on like major donors Mm -hmm. and like networking with rich people. And what I think organizations forget is that who funds you is who owns you. Like, and if, if, the, or if the people that you're accountable to that own you are rich people, your, your major donors and the, the institutional givers that are supporting you, then how are you accountable to the poor people? How are you accountable to stakeholders who are not major donors. And when I work with organizations and I try to help them develop a stellar grassroots fundraising strategy, Mm. there is so much classwork that has to happen Mm. for people to believe in it. I mean, even when Obama ran for president and did, you know, the, the $5, $20 gifts and political fundraising changed so much, um, that there was so much energy in the country around that, right. That he could see all these stakeholders, um, representing a broader class spectrum. And so I've really been working to like help organizations recognize the classism embedded in their fundraising. I'm, um, and what are some of those strategies, right? And so like, what are some of the ways in which you have organizations engage in class differently or maybe it's not even engaged, like recognize, like, yeah, talk a little bit about that. 
Absolutely. I mean, have, getting a board together or a staff together to tell their money stories. So the, the money story uh, activity and having people recognize their relationship to money and some of the assumptions that they're making about who has money and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure you know that when you look at the research, um, working class and poor people, if you look at what they're giving in terms of if you broaden giving out beyond money, um, there's way more generosity. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting moment to confront as an organization that you're basically saying there's this whole subset of stakeholders that you're going to turn your back on. Um, and people, of course, don't want to do that. They want to see themselves as serving their whole community. Um, so then really strategizing with like, well, what would it feel like to have a $5 campaign? And what if you had 2,000 people join your $5 campaign? And how much effort would that take? And then you have 2,000 people on your list, 2,000 more people who care about your mission, who know what you're up to. So I think it's, it it's requires some training. And then I think it, it also goes with the story of like people who want to diversify their board. Right. Mm. So that's kind of how I backed into this conversation right. was that I had a lot of conversations with white board members who were like, well, we want to diversify the board, but we need people to be able to make the give get. And right. then I would say, OK, well, do you really? Yeah. And like, how can we talk about what it means to bring up like what is the value of this perspective? They may not be able to make a five thousand dollar gift but they can open up a world of education and experience and perspective to this board that no one else here can do. So how do you put a price tag on that? Yeah, that is a great um, suggestion. And I'm gonna incorporate some of those suggestions. Um, I, we're gonna go on break. Um, or we're gonna, and we would love to know how folks can get a hold of you, can contact you to, to connect and collaborate. Oh, great. I, my company's called Beyond Conflict. And my email address is evangeline at gobeyondconflict. And the URL is www.gobeyondconflict.com. Wonderful. Um, there are so many things that we can talk about. And so I want us to think about how, what's, what's an important nugget of information that you would like to continue to talk about or piece of your story as you've now had a little bit of time to take some deep breaths and reflect and talk and, and think about, so how does, classism still show up in my work and me and outside of my work. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. For this conversation thus far. So much. Good stuff. Stay tuned. Transformation Change Radio. We'll be right back. You're driven. And it totally shows. Your career is taking off. You're killing it in the mom game. But did your health needs make it on the plate this week? Tune in to Boss Up Babes, where Carissa Adkins helps babes show up, boss up, and thrive. Every second and fourth Tuesday at 1230 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Become the boss babe you were meant to be. To sign up for one of Carissa's group coaching programs, visit 365DailyHustle.com. Wonderful. Welcome back. Um, we are still in this deep conversation with Evangeline. Um, and during break, we had so many possibilities to talk about. <laughs> 
And um, I think one of the gifts that Evangeline has is to be able to share story um, with then strategy, right? Even though it may feel heavy, right? And feel challenging. I think that that is a gift you have. So let's continue this conversation as we think about that learning through a lens of class and it being individually experienced and how we can shift organizations. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I've been thinking about um, how so much of organizational culture wants to silence a conversation about money. And there are actually organizations where in their personnel manuals, it's forbidden for people to share how much they make wow. and for them to talk about their salary. And um, it's, a, it's something that I've encountered. I've been in a, many of orga the organizations I've worked in have been union shops. Mm -hmm. So the labor movement is a place where this conversation is happening. The conversations about money, compensation, class um, are alive. But as we know, unions are also really struggling because um, there's a lot to there's a lot of um, momentum and organizing to shut them down. I worked at an organization for a while where we had a labor union and we were trying to. It was when COVID started. We were trying to figure out if there were going to, there was going to need to be layoffs and how to make, how to make decisions about what we were going to do as an organization because of the pandemic and the stress on the organization. And the, the union members came up with a plan that if we, if all of the employees in the organization took the same salary for two years, we wouldn't have to lay anybody off. Wow. We, we like did the math. That went over really well, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was so painful. It was so painful. And the organization chose the layoffs, right? Chose for the people who were earning more to maintain their wealth, maintain their income, and to ask people to, to leave. And um, the people who were asked to leave were overwhelmingly lower paid people. There were one or two people in manager roles who'd left, but six, five or six people at lower levels left. And in the, in the lead up to this, there was, I will never forget the, the meeting where we were going to talk about how much we made. And we had never shared that information with each other. And we created a spreadsheet and we put everybody's name on the spreadsheet and we invited people to claim what their salary was. Wow. And it was incredibly powerful and anxiety producing. Mm -hmm. um, and there were a lot of feelings about it. And we had some really hard conversations about it. And it was, it was terrifying for me. I, I had a feeling that I was one of the highest paid people in the, in the union and my fears were confirmed. Mm. And so as a white person, as an older person, as a cis person, as a person who grew up upper middle class, I was loaded up with shame. Mm. And I think there's so much work to be done. People have, we have to do our own work um, to be able to have these hard conversations. On the one hand, I had nothing to be ashamed of. Like I advocated for my salary. I was working, I was in that system. I was doing hard work. I think my salary was fair. And I was embarrassed and scared of how my colleagues were gonna perceive me um, who were making less than me. Um, so I think that one of the strategies that organizations can use or 
is to be courageous and to have really open and honest conversations about salary. And I think that that is a rev that's revolutionary in nonprofit culture. Um, and I, I guess my question for boards and for leadership teams is what is so what is threatening about it, right? Because we all know that on the 990 forms, you know, the form, the tax forms, the top earners in the organization get named. So somehow, if you think about that through a class analysis, the people who make the most, we're going to name who they are, they are, right? But then what about the rest of the organization, the people who are making less? Why, what, what suddenly changes? And um, are we just reinforcing this idea that if you earn less, that's, that you're not, a, you're not as worthy? And like, what does it mean to set some bands what does it mean to say no one that works here is going to earn less than this amount right if you're embarrassed as an organization to state how much someone earns then maybe you should be looking at like what you're paying people so i i think that's a very courageous strategy and i know organizations are doing are doing that work and having like the revolution around posting job openings and saying what the salary band is for the job opening. And there's been so much advocacy on the part of poor people and working class people to say, I'm not applying for the job if I don't know. Like, I think that's an example of advocacy that the margin has done to say to the mainstream, hey, you better accommodate us and tell us, tell us what's going on here. Um, so I, I definitely wanted to mention that. And, you know, I, another story that comes to mind, maybe I should take a breath. Should I take a breath? Do you feel like you need to take a breath? No, I feel like I could roll. Okay, well then roll. <laughs> okay, so this other story that comes to mind is when I was working on leadership development and I was responsible for planning retreats. A lot of the work that I did was with people in retreat settings. And we did a retreat for some leaders at a retreat center that was very rustic in nature out in the middle, you know, an hour and a half from a major metropolitan place, an hour and a half from the airport. And we, people were staying in cabins and it was really nice, but it was like in the woods in the middle of nowhere. And um, the first night people put their stuff away and then we're all gonna come to dinner. And I'm in the dining room, like working with the cooks to make sure the food's on time. And this um, woman of color, working class woman of color comes into the dining hall and walks right up to me. And she says, I think I need to go back to the airport. And I was just so concerned. And I was like, please tell me what's going on. And she said, I've never slept any place that doesn't have a lock on the door. And I don't think I can stay here. And it was like this boom moment for me right? That like never, like I was, I was comfortable in the mm -hmm. space, me, my middle-class, upper-middle-class body, my body was comfortable in that space. And it didn't occur to me to like pan for class. It didn't occur to me to like, think about what's it going to be like to be a working class person who's lived in a, uh, with a lock on their door in different kinds of spaces, right? Rural or, or urban. Mm -hmm. And I had to really work with her. And it turned out that in the main house where the dining room was and where the kitchen was, there was a room um, that had a lock on the door. And so we had her move her, we helped her move her stuff over there and we accommodated her. But boy, did that, that changed my checklist. <laughs> that changed my checklist for space. And it was a real awareness of like the, 
the ways in which I am loaded up with that ease mm-hmm. to the point where I'm not thinking about what is it like for people who have less ease and what are some of the needs and the comfort and the safety concerns that people might have that I'm not tracking. And that's because of my, my class. Like I was on my journey learning and now, now I know, <laughs> now I know a little bit more, right? Wow. <laughs> um, as I hear that, because... Oof. And I, I, I think it is a class and race, gender, and, gender, um, and uh, not paying attention. Uh, and that is, uh, you've been with us at uh, the Social Justice Training Institute. And that's one of the reasons that panning for us is so critical, right? To be able to pay attention and to think like, oh, what am I, what may, may I be missing? Yes. Um, and then as I yeah. hear your story, it is sometimes, sometimes in our places of ease, we learn at the expense of. Right. Exactly. And how do we like engage that in our organizations? Like, how do we talk about those moments, those hard, difficult, courageous moments um, and the salary moments, which are our courageous, particularly because we're um, socialized and we learn not to talk about money in direct ways. Like we talk right. about it all the time. Um, and I know within higher education, like folks lose their shit sometimes because in public institutions, the salaries are posted. Like you can find them. You get, you may have to do some digging. Um, and, and some people are like, that's why I don't want to work at a public. That's why I want to work at a private. That's why I want to work in this type of industry we make- so that um, people may not know. And it's usually the people who are earning higher salaries that don't want to know, right? Like. Right you know, it's those lower salaries, like, I don't give a shit if you know it or not. (laughs) Um, I'd like it to be more. Um, But in those higher salaried ranges, the discomfort that we have, even as you said, even given all of your work, right, and your dedication, there was still anxiety and unease about people knowing. Yes. And and how shame and guilt can be a part of that. So I new insight, Becky, shame and guilt and arrogance entitlement. Because if I'm talking at the group level, not about you, Angela, but if folks upper middle class, more wealthy only had shame and guilt, then we would change our individual and collective behavior and have mm. resources realize that actually these resources, they're given to me from a classless situation. And I worked hard, but so does someone who literally was outside going through the dog park and cleaning it up this morning. And actually that was harder work than I'll do probably the entire week I'll put together. Um, The other thing Mm. that got me with your story, and there's so many, but one was that, and I relate to this, I made decisions for other people. So I've Mm. planned leadership retreats and to even ask that question for folks listening to say it again of having everybody say, this is the the places we're thinking of going. What could be some comfort, safety needs that we're not thinking about? It's just a, it's just good planning, much less it's with a class lens. And in this case, race, gender, and others. Um, whew. The other thing that ties for me is, and you said it early, my, you said, I know my worth. When I hear that from my class growing up, my worth is how much money I make. And so I wonder how much this ties back mm-hmm. to folks who are making six figures and above, because I don't know if that's the cutoff, 80,000 and above, depending maybe where you live. They're like, oh no, I worked hard. I earned this. I deserve it. 
And if you make it public, then people will question if I really earned it or I'm worth it. So how much of our class self-work and our privileged identity is self-esteem, who we are, regardless of how much money society says they're going to give us. Those are some yes. random thoughts. Yes. It's, it's the, the silence around money is really deafening. It's really painful. And I think there's, there's so much benefit that organizations can have being honest about the budget, being transparent mm -hmm. about budgets, being transparent about salaries, helping all of the employees, not just the leadership team, understand what it means to create the budget, what it means mm -hmm. to make decisions. And I think that's a place where organizations have opportunity to, to get more investment, more buy-in from program staff, more buy-in from operations staff. If we know, you know, here's, here's what we're working with. And it was so heartbreaking to watch an organ to, to really want to have that conversation and be ready for it and engage with it and just recognize that there was so much fear. And, you know, I think that in or even like my birthday party example, it's like I'm I'm trying to build this muscle of becoming more comfortable talking about money in my personal life um, so that I can be more comfortable talking about money with my clients. So I can be more comfortable talking about money as a coach working with people. And it, I think there's so many opportunities. So you may not want to start, you know, negotiating with your boss or forming a union or like there's higher stakes places to agitate. You may want to just start with having conversations with your kids or your neighbors. Um, if you have a tree that needs to get cut down and one neighbor has more resource than the other neighbor, like, do we have to split it 50-50? Maybe that doesn't make sense. Maybe one neighbor has more money to put towards getting cutting the tree down. Like I'm just using that as a silly example, but there's like so many assumptions that we have in our day-to-day -day life about what it means to be um, to be fair and to share the responsibility, mm -hmm. and we avoid the conversation about what people are bringing to the table mm -hmm. because it's embarrassing to get into the details of like, well, I could bring more to the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to know. Um... What are other ways that classism shows up in organizations that aren't directly tied to money, right? And so we, you, you, you talked a little bit about professionalism, right? Um, and how that may not be a, like, that doesn't necessarily have to center around money if we have knowledge around, if we have networks and connections around how to show up professional, right? Um, so I, like, I'm curious how you see classism um, exist um, beyond money or in addition to money as you navigate and as members navigate being part of organizations? Yeah, thank you. I think that there's some things coming up for me around um, people's, the different roles that people play and the different assumptions we have about role. And I think that classism can express itself around expectations, like how clean the break room is or um, who's responsible for tidying up. Yes, and yes. I think I we've all seen examples of like, oftentimes the lowest paid person in the organization is the person who's in the break room cleaning the microwave. I don't mm -hmm. think that's a coincidence. I don't think that's mm -hmm. an accident. Mm -hmm. And I would also venture to say that nine out of 10 times is probably not in their job description, right? So it's like there's this presumption of like who's gonna stay behind and clean up, who's gonna mm. be there early to set up. And that is so often determined by 
um, how much uh, status you have in the organization, what your positional power is, which, mm-hmm. you know, ex- extrapolating back oh. down, like is more often going to be a white person, more often going to be a person who has um, a graduate degree, not exclusively, but oftentimes the person with the most status is not the person staying behind to clean up after the meeting. Yeah. Um, other examples around dress, around language, um, boundaries. I think that there's this interesting way in which um, people don't, my experience as a as an upper middle class person is that there are times when I feel like the, it can go either way, but it's like I experience people oversharing because they don't care what people think. They don't have to care what people think. Mm. Or I experience people pulling back and mm. not sharing at all because they're scared, ashamed, not don't know how to, to do it right. Um, and so I think there's some, there's ways in which I think it, maybe that's elitism or maybe it's classism, not really sure what the difference is sometimes, mm. but those group dynamics where um, just how do you relax, right? who's who's better at just relaxing Mm -hmm. and um maybe that's a numbers game right of like the majority of the group is working class so it feels like a more working class vibe um or the majority of the group is upper middle class and they're setting the tone they're setting determining the vibe and oftentimes doing it without any kind of self like no self-referential no understanding of what's happening like the vibe is created and then what are we going to do about that? What are we going to, who's benefiting from this vibe? So in these casual moments, um, food, oh my God, food. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we going to eat? Where are we going to go to eat? Um, class shows up in a minute in that conversation. How do we split the checks and all that good stuff? Yeah. So I think those, those experiences affect a person at work. They, um, they affect a person being able to feel like they fit in, being able to feel like they can participate in the full life of the organization. Um, And I think that, again, circling back to do your work, if you're leading or you have positional power in those environments and you don't have a class analysis, you might attribute these dynamics to like personality, individual personality, as opposed to the systems that are operating for people the group identities that are operating for people. I just flashed the last place. I'm sorry, Becky. No, go ahead. Where last place I worked inside never occurred to me, invite the administrative assistant out to social hour. Invited peers who were the leadership team, as well as graduate students, because we were in a residence hall, never occurred to me. Um, And then how many times in meetings are folks in different roles, status roles, invited to meetings, even the word invited, are they a regular part of meetings with two and three layers of quote managers, but not asked to take the notes, they are there to provide insight because they're the implementers of decisions. So can they be involved in decisions and not just told about them? So many ways. Yeah, so many ways. And I I, um, thank you for the uh, we would, people, some people would name them small examples. Uh, um, and yet they're not like, they're such big examples and so blatant. Um, and I, I, I think one of the nuances also is um, what folks, so, so people may have positional titles and may have particular salaries that are 
six figures plus, or as Kathy says, that 80,000, whatever this, whatever may be higher for your area of living. Um, but f- what I often find is the nuance of your class of origin too. Mm. And so um, there could be like the VP, um, you know, who earns and has the title and the money and that is in the room and that gets the authority and is looked for, for the knowledge also could be the one at the end cleaning up the coffee, right? Like cleaning up the coffee mugs that people just left there. Um, And, and then some people notice that like, well, why are you doing this? Right. Um, And there is this like tug around can I and should I and there would be no other option like you all aren't cleaning up after yourself so of course I'm going to do that because that is what I knew and what I see Um, and how do we really in organizations talk about those dynamics Um, not just the dynamic of the current class but that class of origin that may find that tug Um, and of the expectations or of the language or of the dress um, because it is it's like complex and it's messy and it's delightful. You're talking Becky, I flashed, it was probably gonna be folk of color or white women who stayed after. And the cost to them for their other colleagues who were not then judging. So the thought of, can you imagine if senior leaders said, we're gonna stay an extra five, 10 minutes, plant it in your schedule. We're gonna be cleaning up all of us. And if people wanna stay after and talk with us, then we're accessible as well. Maybe make it 15 minutes. So these small shifts and changes can tell very big messages of, but only if that's not performative in a checkbox that some of these other more strategic, how we do hiring, onboarding, salary negotiation that some other folks have talked about on the radio show. We just have a few minutes left. Angela, is anything you haven't said, any story that you in a couple minutes that, what you're working on or what you've been thinking and musing about or just anything else that you want to leave listeners with. Yeah, thank you. I, in Finding Freedom, we, which is in a workshop for white women and gender queer people, we really um, have centered class as a main conversation mm. in doing our work. And I think that it's been a really powerful experience for me to have class alike breakout rooms during the workshops, mm. having people identify the assumptions and some of the myths and some of the the hurts that exist for people and doing some really courageous work, asking um, poor and working class people what they need from the group, um, helping upper middle class and middle class people recognize how easy it is for us to take up space and make assumptions about what is right. And I think that that carrying that over into organizations really this, it does take courage because if we want to lift up the needs and the perspectives of poor and working class people, then that presumes that we can talk about who grew up poor and working class and understand that similar to racial justice work, we want to, um, we don't wanna put the burden on those folks to like tell us what to do. And we also need to understand more how class is operating and having those facilitated conversations and bringing those voices in and recognizing the the gift that comes from having the perspective of a person who's grew up with a different class background 
that has just been really meaningful to me and being called in on my class background and how that's operating, being in a community where we can have real talk about that. So I really encourage listeners, I encourage all of us to find places where we can talk about not only our current class background, but like you're saying, Becky, talk about how we were impacted by our growing up and the messages that we got. That sounds like a, like a lovely series um, and being able to just be with each other in the space of class. We don't often get those opportunities to reflect and to, to learn um, and to be in relate. For me, it's how are we in relationship with each other and class? Yes. Um, that is delightful. And in those conversations, I wonder if there's a parallel with white privilege, because the guilt and shame that I know as a white person I've experienced today, I can talk about white privilege and access as dis descriptors. And then I'm motivated to use white privilege mm -hmm. in community to dismantle racism. I wonder if we will get there with middle and particularly upper middle and even more rich folk to be able to tell experience and not as my money, but I have it because of classism. And so how can I use class privilege? How can I use resources in ways transparently, collectively? Can you imagine? <sighs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your sharing and your connection and your teaching. Um, all of those pieces so critical for us to engage in. Um, we'd like you to, again, um, maybe close us out by like one nugget that you would have and then how folks can connect with you. Mm. Mm. Well, people can connect with me through www.gobeyondconflict.com. And um, a nugget I have is that I, I speaking as an upper middle class person, a person who was raised upper middle class, the silence for me created more anxiety than the conversations. And what I have discovered through the conversations is that my anxiety level around being in multi-class situations, my anxiety has gone down. So I think it's a little, like I, I've been thinking about the parallel to Resma Menachem's dirty pain, clean pain, like the dirty pain of not talking about money versus mm -hmm. the clean pain of like doing the hard work of talking about it. And I just really specifically to people who are listening, who grew up upper middle class and um, haven't found a place to talk about it, um, that it's, it's a really instrumental way to get in your journey, to do your personal work so that you can feel less anxiety around being in spaces that have people from lots of different class backgrounds. Hmm. Thank, yeah, you, thank, thank you, thank you. Thank you, it's been so great reconnecting. I so appreciate it. Yes, us too. This was a gift. So thank you for um, investing to create change. Um, that is really important for us in this work. Um, thank you listeners for being a part of this. Um, again, uh, between now and the next one, pay attention to class. Think about how it shows up. Think about your story and the ways that, in the small ways that may be big ways um, in the ways it shows up in your life. Thank you so much. Transformational change. We'll see you next time.
You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com. Views expressed on this program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not necessarily reflect the views of the station, its management, or advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio.